You're listening to the Gonzo Star Wars Specials. I'm Alex Shaw. Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. This is the fifth of a series of six episodes, each dealing with a Star Wars film. In the last four weeks, we did the prequel trilogy and A New Hope, so you should definitely go listen to them first. Joining me once more is my regular co-host, Neil Taylor from Game Burst. Hello! Returning for Revenge is his co-host, James Batchelor. Hello! And for the first time, we have Mike Phillips from the Fanboys Lunchcast. Hey guys, how's it going? This year marks the 30th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back, along with something else not quite as awesome that followed three months later. Now, Empire, as I've said all along, is my favourite Star Wars movie for many reasons. Uh, we're about to go into, but to kick us off, I'm going to ask you guys to name as many things as possible that we all take for granted as being integral to the series as a whole, which didn't come along until this second movie. The Imperial March. That's the one at the top. <laughs> That's the one at the top of my list as well. Yes, the Imperial March. Just for those of you who've forgotten what it sounds like, it sounds like this. What else do you have? Uh, Yoda. Yep. And, and Yoda's theme, since we're since we're talking about Indeed. music, I think Yoda's theme is. I've got Yoda, well. but Yoda's themes uh, is totally relevant as well, and also a deeper understanding of the Force that comes with him. Well, as our walkers, the- and uh, yeah, the, the walkers. Yep. One thing that occurred to me when I watched is you didn't in the first Star Wars movie, uh, the Force was used to use the Jedi mind trick or to dodge laser blasts from the training droid, but. In this movie, you see Luke pull his lightsaber from the snow, which is something we had not seen them do in Star Yeah, Wars. actually, yeah, I don't remember true. them actually using it to co- control objects. I think, doesn't Obi-Wan use it to distract people when he's uh, he's sneaking around the track? Yeah, he, he does the little oogie-boogie thing with his fingers, and yeah, that yeah. seems to work. But this is the first time you'd seen them move objects with the Force. It was the first time we saw the Emperor's face. Yep, the Emperor I've got mm. here. He was mentioned in Episode 4, but of course he wasn't really a character until now. The Super Star Destroyer. Yes. The Indomitable? Indomitable? The Executor. The Executor. Is it the ex- Executor? I call it the Executor, but I could see Executor. Ah, I, I call it the Executor. Executor sounds more like Donald Trump, and Executor <laughs> sounds terrifying. <laughs> see, so let's the Executor call- is like, it's businesslike, but it's a thinly veiled threat. Yeah. If well, Donald what, Trump was in the Star Wars universe, he would ride around in one of those. If, uh, and he'd have an apprentice. Um, <laughs> oh, I, oh. For the purposes of this particular podcast, I'm going to call it The Executor, just because it sounds cooler. I might be wrong on that one. Anything else? Sure, there's loads, but I can't think. Of the, I only finished watching it about an hour ago. Certain Bounty Hunter? Boba Fett? I did say Bounty Hunters in general, but it got you know, overruled by all the Yoda's theme talk. But Bounty Hunters in general. Yes. 
except for the fact if you don't count the 2004 DVD. Indeed. Yeah. We're going to say that by the time those came along, everyone was pretty much down with the Star Wars, and they knew who Boba Fett was. That the whole reason that he's in though, the episode four for the for that little brief flash, is because everyone knows who he is and how awesome he is. I've got four more things that are very significant. Incredible stunts from the Millennium Falcon. Yeah. Think about it. In episode four, it goes forwards. And then it goes down and up. And it lists lazily, it lists to, the lazily to the left. <laughs> In this one, it's barrel rolling, it's flying around through canyons, it's fucking phenomenal. And it becomes the best starship of all time, closely followed by Serenity and Galactica. It's probably its most amazing stunt, though, is when it when they turn and attack the Star Destroyer and oh, yeah. he buzzes the bridge like Tom Cruise in Top Gun and oh, then yeah. somehow magically attaches to the back of the bridge. I would have loved yeah. to have seen that landing sequence. Indeed. And also, everyone on the back of the bridge just sort of looking out the window and going, all the stars have disappeared. <laughs> this is my point. No one point. This is one of the, my things on my list of things that Go don't for make it sense. Now. It no one notices a bloody great big spaceship <laughs> sitting on the back. Surely there'd be little alarms that go there off. There must be point. windows. Or someone's sitting in the mess hall at the back, and all you hear is ka-chung. Or when they're, designing like, the the was that? when they're designing the Star Destroyer. Sir, windows on the rear? No point. No point. We're not going to be backing up in this thing. Blind spot. I mean, we only go the, full. If the Enterprise had been built like that, what's it like? The, um, the <laughs> Next Generation episode, Galaxy's Child, where a bloody great big slug attaches itself to the back of the Enterprise. And if no there were no windows, <laughs> what's going on? The power's going out. Okay, three more things. Romance between Han and Leia. No. Yes. It was sort of there in episode four, but they were just mainly bickering. She smiles at him at the end of, in the ceremony. That's about it. And you think there might be something. But at that point, it was totally up in the air as to who she was going to get with. Are we to do um, the spoiler from the end count as well? So, okay, right. If it's... <laughs> they it's may be kids. Be fair. They may be kids. No kids who've never seen The Empire Strikes Back or any other Star Wars film apart from episode four are listening to this show. It's not a spoiler. But yeah, okay, go for it. Luke, I am your father. No, I am your father. Stop (laughs) getting Star Wars wrong. I I have to, just because it's so fun to wind you up with. Okay, right. Darth Vader's full character, brooding, scarred, murdering father. And, of course, to go with that, visually stunning lightsaber battles, because before that, we hadn't had one. Force ghosts. We hadn't uh, seen those before. Actually, yeah, we hadn't ghosts. seen Obi-Wan before. We just no. heard him talking. Yep. And we didn't see them after Return of the Jedi. Because yeah, because Qui-Gon and all of that stuff. So much of what people consider Star Wars is, is based on this movie. Yeah.
Star Wars exceeded all expectations in terms of profit, its revolutionary effect on the movie industry, and its unexpected resonance as a cultural phenomenon. Lucas hoped to become independent from the Hollywood film industry by financing The Empire Strikes Back himself with $33 million from loans and the previous film's earnings, going against the principles of many Hollywood producers to never invest one's own money. Now fully in command of his Imperial fleet, sorry, Star Wars Enterprise, Lucas chose not to direct The Empire Strikes Back because of his other production roles, including overseeing his special effects company Industrial Light and Magic and the handling of finances. Doesn't that sound like music to your ears when I say that? <laughs> Lucas offered the role of director to Irvin Kirshner, one of his former professors at USC School of Cinema. He was known for his smaller scale character driven films. Kirshner initially refused, citing his belief that a sequel would never meet the quality or originality of the original Star Wars. He called his agent, who immediately told him he was mental, and demanded that he take the job. In addition, Lucas hired Lawrence Kasdan and Lee Brackett to write the screenplay based on his original story. Lee Brackett completed her draft in February 1978 before dying of cancer. And Lucas wrote the second draft before hiring Kazdan, who had impressed him with his draft of Raiders of the Lost Ark. After the various increases in budget, The Empire Strikes Back became one of the most expensive movies of its day, and after the bank threatened to pull his loan, the fuckers, Lucas was forced to approach 20th Century Fox. Lucas made a deal with the studio to secure the loan in exchange for paying the studio more money, but without the loss of his sequel and merchandising rights. After the film's box office success, unhappiness at the studio over the deal's generosity to Lucas caused studio president Alan Ladd Jr. to quit. The departure of his longtime ally caused Lucas to take Raiders of the Lost Ark to Paramount Pictures. He went a long road to try and maintain his creative control, and yeah. he, forget the prequels for a minute, it proved that it works yeah. that way. Going independent was a really good idea, actually. Not I think the fact that these mov- these three movies stayed independent is an important thing mm. to them. Not being beholden to any other particular studio. And ultimately, he, he was able to do so because he made so much money from the original. He's lived what most other aspiring directors would consider to be a dream. Maybe not in terms of integrity, but definitely in terms of productivity. Yeah, and considering from Star Wars, what else he he created and went on to hmm. do with the, the like ILM, Pixar, hmm. Skywalker Sound and the myriad of other things. And all of these films specifically have led to some massive technical advancements. It's the it's the wetter of their day. Absolutely. That lot was all from Wikipedia. Uh, the original version of Empire Strikes Back was released on Capacitance Electronic Disc in 1984. This format was commonly known as a video disc, leading to much confusion with the contemporary Laserdisc format. Laserdiscs were read optically with a laser beam, whereas CED video discs were read physically with a stylus, rather like a gramophone record. I have never heard of these! I haven't, but now I want to see one! Me too, I looked on Someone eBay. somewhere has got one, I guarantee you, and they're like waiting and waiting and waiting, they're going to sell it for millions. I am older than Yoda, and I have never heard of those. I actually had the three on Betamax. I was going to say. Wow. Later it was released on VHS, Betamax and Laserdisc several times during the 80s and 90s. Again, I've never seen a Betamax, but I at least know what they're like. I shall one-up James. I had Star Wars on Laserdisc. Nice. We'll go into the actual releases later. I've got a little uh, chart on what they actually came out on.
keep an eye out during the Battle of Hoth. General Veers is played by Julian Glover, who was Donovan in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the bad guy who drank from the wrong grail, chose poorly. Also famously among Brits, Admiral Ozzel is played by Michael Sheard, better known as Mr. Bronson from TV's Grange Hill. Now that their characters are fully embodied in this film, we can finally talk about Luke, Leia, Han and Vader. There's an immediate tone shift between episodes four and five that is reflected in these characters. Everything suddenly becomes a lot more serious and the idea of the rebels being on the run in the midst of a bitter and deadly civil war is never better exemplified. It's a war film. It's a chase movie, it's a spiritual journey to the light and dark sides of Luke's psyche, and it surpasses and expands upon A New Hope in almost every way possible. One of the key factors that's at work here that was entirely absent from the prequels is that the characters care about each other. They worry about each other. Their own lives become less important and it sets up a bond of friendship that holds the entire saga together. In the prequels, Anakin resents Obi-Wan, Padme fears and is annoyed by Anakin, and Obi-Wan fears, resents and is annoyed by Anakin. There's no bond but that which they announce is there. We don't feel it. First thing in Empire, Han worries about Luke. Then Leia, Chewie and the droids worry about Luke and Han. Then when they get back together and once again part ways, they constantly keep one another in mind. Crucially, at the point when Yoda urges Luke to abandon his friends in favour of a colder, sacrificial, higher calling, the one Anakin clearly should have taken... Luke refuses, and through his actions, much inner turmoil is wrought. However, due to his purest and most unselfish of intentions, and because of his deep love and friendship with Han and Leia, Luke is able to eventually do what Anakin could not. I think you even see you know, the bonds of friendship and all that portrayed um, quite you know, uh, convincingly between the side characters. Like, Lando turns up, mm. and when he, you know, there's that whole you know, fake um, anger with... Han, and then it's like, what have you done with my ship? Yeah, what have you done with my ship? And the the line that I love is, and how are you doing, Chewbacca? Are you still hanging around with this loser? You can tell these guys have known each other for years. Yeah. If you go back and look at like the equivalent, say, I don't know, Dexter and Obi Wan from um, Episode Two, the Cantina scene. That, there was nothing there. You, those two didn't feel like, you know, oh... We well, because one of them wasn't even there. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is true. It was a tennis ball on a stick, and, uh, and you and McGregor was being told, oh, yes, it's good to see you again, tennis ball on a stick. Hang on, what's yeah. this one? Is this the Ackley? And, you know, yeah, one, exactly. of, one of the most simultaneously hilarious and endearing bonds that they show is... Chewbacca with C-3PO on oh, his yes. back running around yeah. Bespin. It's it's kind of hilarious that they're in that situation as they're trying to escape, but at the same time, it's it's kind of powerful to have mm. Chewie, you know, behaving like that toward the stupid droid. And actually, I was I noticed this for the first time today while I was watching that scene. It's again, it's back to R2 and 3PO. Suddenly, you're back to how they started in the Tentive 4. Technically, Leia and Lando and Chewie are doing all the shooting of the Stormtroopers, but really, it's the droids trying to get out. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so who was your favourite when you were a kid? Luke or Han? Han. Luke. Han. Han. The Hans win. <laughs> Actually, no, to begin with, when I was very small, I think I was more of a Luke fan. I think by the time I was more into Han, everyone else had gone off Star Wars. Well, no, I, I did. I, okay, I pretended. I didn't do it in the garden, but I did it in the um, sorry, in the playground. But we pretended Star Wars in the garden with my cousins, and oh, there right. were four of us. There was me, my sister, and two of my cousins. So she was Leia. She was Leia, which is really awkward because I was Han. It's like, well, she's Ooh. my sister. No, this is not going. You should have been Luke at that Luke. stage. <laughs> <laughs> that was the thing. But the other two had already shotgunned Luke and Chewie. So it's like, okay, I'm on, but that doesn't, you know, there's nothing there, we're not doing that bit. 
And I'm yeah. trying to imagine ten-year-old kids in 1999 going, right, I'm Obi-Wan, so I'll go and moan on the ship for an hour, and you be Qui-Gon, and you go and dupe some alien. I mean, fuck all happens in episode one. You can, you can imagine, like, one kid going, I want to be Jar Jar Binks, and getting punched in the face. Yeah. Or one kid going, I want to be Darth Maul, and then the other's going off crying after he gets too rough with a stick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, yank, yanks out the netball pole and starts flinging it around. But that's about the only interesting bit in episode one. I don't... I, Honestly, if you ki- if there's anyone out there who's now 20, who was about 10 in uh, in the year 2000, tell us if you played Star Wars in the playground based on the prequels. Let us know. We want to know this. And hag your heads in shame afterwards. <laughs> Should have chosen a good trilogy, you whippersnappers. <laughs> yeah, they'll pro- they'll probably waiting for the Lord of the Rings, and then they'll be in Gandalf. Well, you managed to keep me around a little longer, Ness. It looks like you managed to keep me around a little longer. I assure you, I had nothing to do with it. Yeah, right. I think you just can't stand to let a fat guy like me out of your sight. Why, you stuck-up, half-witted, scruffy-looking nerf herder! You can't use that word! Only we can use that word! On January 11th, 1977, one day before he was set to shoot one of the final scenes needed for Star Wars, Mark Hamill was in a car accident in which he fractured his nose and left cheekbone. According to Star Wars producer Gary Kurtz, Hamill was in surgery from 9am until 4pm. As a result of the accident, a double was used for the land speeder pickup shots. This left Hamill with a deeply scarred face, hence the Wampa attack at the beginning of Empire to explain it. In my humble opinion, it seems greatly fortuitous in hindsight as Luke now looks like a battle-ravaged warrior. It's particularly notable in Jedi when there are many long, lingering shots of Luke's craggy face as he's deep in thought. He seems worlds away from the somewhat squeaky farm boy of A New Hope. I didn't know that, but I love that. I love that. That's like, um, what's it, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where they put in young Indiana Jones cutting his lip because mm. obviously Harrison Ford's got that famous scar on his, on his um, bottom chin. Yeah. I love it when they do that. I have no, I, that is new to me. That's new information. To me, it's it, it's similar also to you know that bit with the Cairo swordsman in Raiders. We're going to talk about that <laughs> later. But basically, yeah. the reason that Indy just shoots him, he was supposed to be having a long protected fight with him. But Harrison Ford was riven with dysentery at the time. He was miserable. He had the shits. He couldn't be bothered. He went, ah, oh, what if I just shoot him? So looking forward to the uh, special edition where the Cairo swordsman shoots first. <laughs> <laughs> Lord Vader, we're out of light speed and you have failed me for the last time, Admiral. Didn't know I could choke you through the TV, did you? But I can. Captain Piet, you're in charge now. Don't fail me, Admiral Piet. A promotion? Really? Can I get business cards that say Admiral? That's, that's not in the budget. You know, we're trying to catch rebels here. I don't even have business cards. None of us do. Do you have business cards? Yeah. You have business cards? You're a stormtrooper. There's like a million of you. What do you need business cards for? Well, they're for my cookie business. I don't want... Oh, my God. That chocolate chip cookie looks like the Death Star. The way the sets are lit, the sturdier design of the world, the far clearer, less redubbed dialogue, smoother editing, and all-round more polished feel makes Empire seem like it was made a decade after A New Hope, not just three years. Star Wars is charmingly creaky, even in the special editions, and retains a classic Golden Age feel, as though it could have been released in the 1940s and still have delighted audiences. In contrast, Empire could be released tomorrow and would be lapped up as a dark fantasy classic. 
I, it was, it's impressive. They seem to find like a, this amazing middle ground. Like I, I, mm. I saw you on Twitter earlier, like saying you're watching the 1980s version. Oh no, you emailed me. You said you were watching the 1980 version. Yeah. So I watched that um, this evening just before we recorded, and I watched it. and I thought, you know what? The, the effects obviously are really primitive compared to today. Mm. Back then, they would have been brilliant. But what they what they did with Empire that they didn't do with um, New Hope is they made sure they kept themselves within their limitations. They understood their limitations. They didn't bite off more, they, more than they can chew. Mm. So things like, what's it, the massive space battle around the, um, the Death Star, we said last week, isn't that impressive, isn't brilliant, because obviously... We got into trouble for that. Giles loves that scene. He gets goosebumps, because obviously he saw it for the first time in the cinema. And I'm assuming, Mike, did you see that in the cinema? Because you're old. <laughs> yeah, I, did. I, I saw that in the in the theater when I was seven years old. Yeah. That's I was seven the year Star Wars came out. Oh, well, on, perfect on the age. Oh, it, I mean, I I've always said that I was the perfect age for it. Seven when Star Wars came out. Ten when ten Empire forever. came out. My so, friends and I would spend all day at the theater mm. and you know just hide under the seats between showings and watch it all day. And in fact, they just I saw the all of the movies at the exact same theater. This enormous twin domed theater called the Cynodome that looks like a, a, a massive pair of tits, but they just recently tore it down last week, which was really sad. Big Did chunk of an even bigger pair of tits. <laughs> Ooh, I hope because it was so much a big part of my formative years. I, I was pretty consumed by star Wars. It was star Wars and football were like the two things that I loved. And I had all the action figures, all the trading cards, all the ships, all the everything still do actually in, in a trunk somewhere in the basement of my parents' house. But it was, you know, it was like the most important thing to me at the time and actually, you know, kind of taught me some, some pretty important lessons, especially The Empire Strikes Back. But we'll probably touch on that as we get toward the end of the, the movie. Empire has a moody pace which propels you onward, the ever-looming shadow of Vader threatening to engulf our heroes as his obsession grows more personal by the minute, right up to the game-changing finale. And regarding the scripts, bringing outside sources in means this is the first Star Wars film not exclusively written by Lucas that we can talk about. The delivery is also far tighter and more natural, leaving the prequels in the dust. Lawrence Kasdan and the first draft author Lee Brackett, now sadly departed, captured everything that was interesting about Lucas's universe and then made it for grown-ups as well. It's lean and snappy and clearly benefited from ad-libbing on set. In short, it's how a Star Wars film should be scripted and hasn't been for 17 years. I think the uh, the point there you make about it being for grown-ups mm. is why those movies were so good for me as a kid. They mm. weren't pandering, they weren't written for kids, they mm. weren't you know talking down to me. Mm. It felt like I was watching a piece of entertainment aimed at adults, but that I could relate to, and that's yeah. why... At least the first two movies specifically were so important and so powerful for me as a kid. Oh, you've just hit on something perfect there. I've been wanting to try and work out a way to frame this, the whole series of, of these we've been doing. There is a sense of pandering in the prequels 
which you're right with in terms of actually going right so kids are going to watch these films they're going to want a young Anakin otherwise they're not going to be able to relate to it so let's put a kid in there girls are going to watch these films they like dresses let's put Amidala in as many dresses as possible boys are going to want some fighting so let's make sure Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon do a lot of fighting especially at the end and it's, it's they throw people in there just to cater to everyone Plinkett has said and it's quite a, a ballsy statement that Mace Windu was effectively put in there for the black community because well for a start Jar Jar Binks is not going to exactly bring them in but <laughs> one of the greatest black actors of all time certainly might and uh, the fact that Mace Windu is a fairly rubbish character and Sam Jackson has bugger all to do for three films is just a tragedy heaped mm. upon that if, if effectively if he was just in there to fill a demographic but there aren't any kids in the original trilogy and yet kids love them so that completely scotches the idea that you've got to put kids in or kids won't like it and right. it I mean, there's no, there's like one girl, which made it very difficult when you were playing Star Wars in the playground, there was more than one girl. That rarely happened for me, strangely. In all seriousness, I don't think they, they put Leia in there just for the girls. I, I, I think she, she feels a, a very important role in the film, and it, it doesn't really seem like that she's just been put there as wardrobe dressing. Most of her outfits are a little bit kind of military. Mm. And I, I know you don't want to hear this, Alex, but I, I feel like a lot of that pandering began with Return of the Jedi once all of the toys in the films and all of that were so successful. No, no, I'll admit that. I can understand the flaws of Jedi. Yeah, yeah. you get, you know, burp humor and fart humor and Mm -hmm. characters that are named Salacious Crumb and characters that are named uh, Admiral Akbar, who is the Mon Calamari, which is why he looks so much like a fish. You know, all of that kind of thing, where in the first two movies... People were named things that you could believe. They were sort of otherworldly, but they weren't plays on, you know, puns or or things like that. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. That's just where it sort of took a turn for me. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, there's uh, there's many things about uh, the prequels which were started in Jedi, and we'll we'll touch on that next week. But you're right. There's, it's definitely got not so much an adult tone, but Pixar capture that sense of being able to be enjoyed by everyone in exactly the same way as these original, say the first two did. Maybe, yeah. oh, fuck it, the original. I mean, adults can enjoy Jedi as well. There's plenty of stuff in there for adults. Um, but I don't even know who the prequels are for. Because George Lucas. <laughs> yeah, they're too complex and political and boring for the kids. And kids don't like romance, so what the fuck was that doing in episode... Uh, no, sorry, we established that. They were trying to do Titanic. Um, and, and yet, they're, they're way too, like, twee and explain everything in words of one syllable for the adults to enjoy. So, God knows who they were for. I think another reason why Empire kind of works so well uh, is, for me, the, the, the film is about Han, mm. principally, rather than Luke. You know, Jedi and, and New Hope are well. New Hope was kind of about Leia. It was about getting her out, and it was about Luke's journey to rescue her. Mm-hmm. Jedi obviously is about Luke, his you know his inevitable conflict and facing his destiny. Empire is about Han. Han is, as we established last week, the best character, the most interesting character, mm-hmm. and because it's focused on him, it's about it. It almost becomes a kind of rogue's tale. To use mm-hmm. an RPG term, it is a rogue's tale. And I personally, and I think a lot of people, always find rogue's tales much more interesting. It's the kind of the Robin Hood, the Jack Sparrow, the uh, the Axel Foley, the people that are, you know, they kind of they stagger the line between good and evil. Or, or law-abiding and not law-abiding or whatever. Mm. And they're the characters that people absolutely love. 
and they show and and as a result you know we get a look into this much much darker side of the universe with bounty hunters and smugglers and lando's shifty operation and all of this and it makes for much more gripping viewing it almost becomes a thriller more than a fantasy you know the first one is blatantly a fantasy uh, you know the castle evil castle wizard princess we did all this last week this one's very much a thriller and a mystery and that's that pace is brilliant and i love that i think that's another reason why this uh... It's Han's last hurrah, too, really, as a, a snarky, inventive, courageous badass, and then yeah. it's sort of emasculated. They water him Jedi down to something chronic in Jedi, definitely. I was actually going to conserve my whole diatribe on Han's arc for next week, because it's too big to fit into this along with everybody else, um, <laughs> simply because there's fuck all to talk about regarding Han in Jedi, and I don't want it to just be about <laughs> Luke and Vader. No, you're, you're right, James. It's, he's definitely taken center stage in this one. Also, significantly, everyone had tweaked that Harrison Ford had star quality out the yin-yang by this point. Yeah. And he was already lined up for Indiana Jones, and it was like, right, we've got someone here. Let's stick hand center stage. And boy, does he eat up that camera. Like and every you single care shot about him. On. Every single shot he's on, every single scene he's in, every single line he has, mm. you just love. Mm. Also, the music in this film is just... Incredible. It, it, I, I would quite possibly say one of John Williams' best scores, if yeah. not the yep. best score ever. I mean, we all heard me gush about John Williams last week, and I apologise for that. I will be a lot calmer this week. <laughs> I just love it. I absolutely love it. There are so many iconic themes in this score. You've got the Imperial March, which is has been parodied so much mm. and used as a kind of theme for... It. That is the theme for evil. Mm. If you could sum up evil in all shapes and forms in one musical stretch, it would be the Imperial March. They use it in, like, I think they've used it in The Simpsons. I remember watching Pop Idol or X Factor or one of them, mm. and they introduced what, you know, the bad judge to the theme of Darth Vader's. They introduced film. Mr. Burns with it. They didn't even change it at all. They were just like, dun, 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 dun. If you go to an American college football game, if the defense stops the offense, the marching band plays the Imperial March. <laughs> How's that for pervasive? Yes. Brilliant. You also have, like, you know, you've got the Yoda's theme that we talked about earlier, which is just beautiful and really serene. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got the asteroid theme, possibly one of my favourite pieces of the Mm. entire trilogy. Um, In fact, can we just listen to a little bit of that? I think we can. up with that um the, the <laughs> violin amazing amazing the other thing and that come down it's like the come down that 
It's like a, a roller coaster just pulling in to the to the station. You're like, oh, that was awesome. Yeah. He's, he's very roller coaster, that music. That is exactly what I thought when I saw it in the cinema for that. The Empire was the first Star Wars film that I saw in the cinema for the first time rather than watching it on video beforehand. And my God, it was amazing. So you hadn't seen Empire before then? I had never seen Empire before I saw wow. it in the cinema. And then you were what? Seven or eight? I, I was... Uh, yeah. no, seven, 11. 11. Yeah. Wow. So, I don't know how you could get... Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how... I, I don't know. I, I just count the first 11 years of my life. They're rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> they were. They were shit. Um, yeah. The last theme that I think is, is truly amazing and, and possibly sums up John Williams' genius is... The Hannah Leia romance music. The Hannah Leia romance music. It's It's just brilliant. On its own, it's such a beautiful piece of music. It completely sums up and, and evokes the emotion that he wants it to. It evokes the, uh, the feeling of tenderness and so forth. It also goes to show like how, and I tried saying this to you a lot, but you started going on about magnets last week. Um, it explains how he, he uses a theme, and he can use it in so many different situations, and it can evoke completely different emotions, completely different feelings, and it, it, but still be brilliant. So... For example, we first one of the first times we hear it is as Han runs onto the Millennium Falcon during the Battle of Hoth mm-hmm. and tries to turn on. It comes in quite cheekily in the background. With a, it, it's almost mocking him as he runs on and tries to bash the controls of the Millennium mm-hmm. Falcon to get going. It goes like this. And then you hear, I think you even hear it at the end of the... Um, the asteroid field like as a kind of come down mm. it's part of the come down it's, and it's it, again it's that kind of relief you hear it as um, um, when they when they float away from the star destroyers um, with the garbage and it's quite it's a relief it's like oh thank god we managed that mm. Possibly the best part, part is used. It's during the escape from Cloud City, and it builds up, and it's quite desperate, and it's used quite, um, quite, uh, mm. you know, with a lot of intention, you know, intent, uh, sorry, tension and so forth. And it's getting to the bit where R2 is trying to open the door, and they're surrounded by stormtroopers, and the only hope is R2 open this door. And as he opens it, it is magnificent. Oh yeah, it crashes in. It, it crashes in. It's bombastic it's majestic it's amazing it erupts it, that, that is the only word for it it erupts into the full theme and it's just beautiful moment is still remarkably effective on me I, I just recently a couple days ago watched the movie again and yeah that part in particular is one of the the biggest kind of rushes you get from the entire movie yeah. but would it be would it be like that if you didn't have john williams score or not if at all if it was danny elfman <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
A few words on Yoda. It may seem like either a bold claim or one that's relatively unchallenged depending on what films you watch, but I would cite Frank Oz's work here with Yoda to be the finest performance with a puppet in cinema history. When he first meets Luke, Yoda acts like a complete child, drawing the genuine unmasked reactions out of Skywalker, and then when he's revealed to be the wise Jedi Master Luke seeks, his character transforms before our eyes to one of aged pain and regret with dignity and expressiveness and more personality than the full cast of the prequels combined. I was about to say that. It's a sad state of affairs when a puppet can outact the entire prequel cast. Especially the fact that there's some actually really good actors in there. They they could have given us personality, it just wasn't teased out of them. Every sigh and slump of the shoulders, every frown and accusing poke of his gyma stick speaks of being who has seen the world fall away at the actions of power-hungry men. He's now jaded and embittered, unready to train Luke despite him being the last remnant of the Jedi, until a show of contrition and determination is conferred. Like Vader, he seeks to break Luke down and strip away the layers of self-absorption and recklessness that plagued Anakin. Unlike Vader, he wishes to rebuild Luke into a powerful model of Jedi calm and passivity, warding him off reliance on weapons and attack, effectively to send out a younger, fitter, stronger version of Yoda himself to deal with Vader and his Emperor. There is a deleted scene that would have been at the end of Revenge of the Sith that we forgot to mention in our episode 3. It was taken out to allow more focus on the Skywalker family. It simply depicts Yoda's escape pod landing on Dagobah and him walking down the steps, glancing around and sighing as he begins his decades-long self-imposed exile. Punishment for his lack of foresight and his inability to defeat the cackling new emperor. It's a redefining moment for the character, key to the whole saga, and it's a crying shame that Lucas and company felt it was too distracting to put in the final movie. There was one part, like I said, I was watching it today, Empire Today, and there was one part, one line, where, and again, maybe it's because I've watched the prequel, so I now, I subconsciously think about the backstory a lot more now when I'm watching this. Maybe not the way it was depicted, but certainly what the backstory involved, and I think about it in relation to what's going on. Through the Force, things you will see, other places, the future, the past, old friends long gone. And as he says that, his eyes sag, and I just can, I, I, I in my head picture all of the Jedi that fell during Order 66. Okay, I have to ask you guys about this. Why does everybody, myself included, think Boba Fett is so freaking awesome? Yeah, I've you listen to a this. different point of view. <laughs> yeah, I have actually. Good I man, listened yeah. to all of them. Thank you very much for that recommendation. You're more, uh, more, yeah, more, those were I, I was exactly the same. Until I listened to those, I did think he was actually quite cool. But as he points out, all Boba does is stand around and hold a gun. <laughs> That's it. He well, doesn't he, kill he a does single w- person. He does one thing that demonstrates what a badass he is, because you see just how clever Han is in escaping the Star Destroyer, but Boba Fett is already one step ahead of him and right. had already no, showed it out. No, 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 no. That was just stupid. So Boba Fett is on the Executor, the yep. Executor, whichever we decided on about an we hour ago. We decided on Executor, it sounds The Executor. Like. Boba is on the Executor, yep. right? How, then, does he suddenly appear in the garbage section of the same ship that Han is on, which is, I don't know, a couple of light years ahead, because the the Executor came out of the asteroid field to call the Emperor and to some of the bounty hunters. 
the Star Destroyer that Han actually takes on and the Millennium Falcon attaches to is a completely different ship. How is Boba Fett there? And how does he know? And what sort of garbage is that? Actually, it's Captain Needer's ship. It's nothing to do with the Executor. Exactly, exactly. Well, no, surely Fett would just go to his last known location? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, yeah, maybe. He's very clever. (laughs) That's why he's so badass. Zantariad is grinding his teeth at the moment. He loves him some Boba Fett. I can give you some contributing factors. Go on, then. Okay, right. Here's number one as a reason why everyone thinks Boba Fett's so cool. Pre-release action figure. Yes. The end of the original Star Wars line, you'll remember this one, Mike, the, the first the first film's figures, they had a uh, Boba Fett figure. Was it was it free if you collected enough tokens? It was. You had to send it in, and it actually had a missile that fired from his pack. And, I still uh, that. and, and when they finally... Seriously, you it, have a missile-firing Boba Fett, one of those prototypes that never got sent out? I have the, the original one when you sent in the, the huh. box, or the proof-of-purchase gizmos. Right. As far as I can tell, they never actually sent out any of the ones with, where the missile fired because, you know, kids in the test were shooting their eyes out. Either way, basically, it was this sort of, ooh, this guy's going to be in the next uh, movie, and boy, does he look badass. And then when you got sent it, automatically it was a free figure, so everyone was going to be like, awesome! And he looked really cool as well. Because, I mean, looking at that figure, even as a child, you don't even need to see him doing anything. He looks like he's a bag of tricks, right? So you got that. Um but then when you actually see him in the in the film, he's got quiet, threatening resolve. He doesn't even stride around the place shouting at people like Vader does, especially in, in episode four. He's just there. He's always in the right place at the right time. And he looks like he could kick your ass. He even kind of backs enough- off Vader, doesn't he? Like, he, he, he's quite demanding of Vader. It's hmm. like, you know, you, I don't want him dead. He's worth a lot to me. What if he doesn't survive? He's worth a lot to me. That's the one, yes, sorry. I misquoted. I apologize. See, unlike Neil, I'm going to apologize for that. That's fine. Um, um, yeah, I like, you know, no one else could talk to you. Say, like, say, Lando couldn't say, hang on, Vader, I'm not liking this. Even Jabba would think twice before that shit. But I think the other thing that uh, kind of makes you think, well, this guy is not to be fucked with, he gets away. He doesn't get punked, at least not in this one. He just gets away with Han, and his plans play out. He's a villain who makes shit work. Even even Vader doesn't get his man at the end of this one, but Boba gets his man in Empire. No, he doesn't. He's given he, his man is handed to him literally on a silver plate, <laughs> and, yes. and 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 he's got an entire like you know four or five stormtroopers to escort him to his ship, and then he flies away. He doesn't actually do anything. No, I think that pretty much hit the nail on the head. He just sort of stands there a lot. I'm going to put attach a lot of importance to he looks cool. Even though what's it like the, the scene where um what's it like you know I've just done a deal with will keep the empire out of here forever. The doors open and there's Darth Vader at the end of the table. Yeah. And then we would be honoured if you would join us. And out comes Boba Fett. You can blatantly tell that Vader said right. I want you to hide behind that corner because it'll have more impact if it's just me. <laughs> no, no, seriously, get back there. No, no, I don't care how good your gun looks. Stand back there and then jump out and shout surprise or something. <laughs> oh, and you know, probably uh, 50% of, of how cool Boba Fett looks is because you see him stood next to Bosk, IG-88, Dengar, Zuckus, and Forlom. True, true. A bunch of weird insects. This droid who looks inexpressive mummy. even for a droid. A dude who's covered in toilet paper and a big lizard. If another bounty hunter had also had Mandalorian armor, suddenly he's less special. One other point. He's singled out by um, Vader as a uh, fan of disintegrations, and those are cool. 
He points directly at Boba and says, no disintegrations. Why would Boba Dis- be a fan of disintegrations? That's going to be useless for a bounty hunter. Were you about to say that? Uh, no, I wasn't. But that's You can't bring in a carcass if it's disintegrated. Uh, no, that's for the dead or alive, but not so alive bounty. You can't bring in a mark if it's disintegrated. There's a pile of ash. Now where's my money? Seriously, what good bounty hunter becomes notorious for being able to disintegrate people? Yeah, that's true. But no, but Dengar is the master of disintegration. Leia and the Wookiee must never again leave this city. It was never a condition of our arrangement, nor was giving harm to this bounty hunter. I have altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. This deal's getting worse all the time. Furthermore, I wish you to wear this dress and bonnet. This was never a condition of our arrangement. I have altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. This deal's getting worse all the time. Here is a unicycle. You will ride it wherever you go. What? I'm not riding the f***ing unicycle. I have altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. This deal is getting worse all the time. Also, you are to wear these clown shoes and refer to yourself as Mary. Oh, f*** you, man. I'm not doing it. I have altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. This deal... is very fair, and I'm happy to be a part of it. Special editions. We've talked about the original 1997 and 2004 cuts last week, but it's important to look back on how limited our first access was to these films. Let's look at the home formats. 1977, Super 8, the projected home movie segments that Zantiri had saw at his parties. Like I said, segments. Paul Zan had to watch the trench run, and what was the other bit? The opening scene, wasn't it? The opening scene, that's yeah. It. It's That's all kids got back in those days. They had to go to the theatres to see it again, or, or like Mike, hide in the theatres to see it repeatedly. 1982, two years after Empire Strikes Back comes out, A New Hope constant linear velocity flipper laser disc. In other words, you had to switch it over halfway through. I'd have been happy enough with that in 1982, if I'd had a laser disc player, and it was older than two. Uh, 1984, A New Hope and Empire on VHS and Beta. 1985, A New Hope and Empire on Constant Angular Velocity, single-sided laser disc. 1986, Jedi comes out on VHS. At this stage, my dad should have got me the trilogy on video, but he didn't. No. Leave them to me. I will deal with them myself. 1989, A New Hope and Empire come out on widescreen laser disc in the USA. Until that point, they weren't even bloody widescreen. 1990, Jedi comes out on widescreen Laserdisc in the USA. Again, we didn't get them over here. And the trilogy come out on VHS box set. 1992, the trilogy come out on widescreen VHS. So that's what? 15 years between Star Wars being released and Star Wars coming to video in widescreen. 1993, definitive trilogy collection on nine discs. A £13 monster of a CAV Laserdisc box set with bonus materials. 1995, the THX Masters of the videos in widescreen and pan and scan versions, and the CLV Laserdisc. 1997, the Special Edition Trilogy in widescreen pan and scan VHS and widescreen Laserdisc. That was like the first big like re-release where they'd actually changed stuff and obviously tied in with the movie releases. 2004, DVD widescreen four-disc set plus VHS. 2006, Two-disc limited editions, including, you know those non-anamorphic versions that we've got? Yes. Yeah. Those are the laser discs from 1993. And coming 2011, next Christmas, apparently, the entire saga on Blu-ray. The first two words bother me. Entire saga on Blu-ray. I don't want the prequels on Blu-ray. I don't want them. They're not coming in. If I get them on Blu-ray, I'm going to sell them on Blu-ray to anyone who wants them. Fuck it, just No. Just the original trilogy. K thanks. Bye. 
So obviously they'll they'll do a uh, separate trilogy, but they may wait a year or two before they do that. Scary. Seriously scary. Now on to the differences to The Empire Strikes Back between the various editions. I noticed once again that while watching the 1980 cut today, in its tiny, non-anamorphically justified state, it's still stunning, but not as visually or audibly impressive as the special editions, so once again, it's a tough call on which is better. Of the three originals, this one is probably the one that's been altered the least noticeably over the years. Some might say it's because it was pretty much exactly what Lucas wanted the first time around. Let's hear what you guys think of the alterations to the 97 and 04 editions. First change, picture quality and sound. Any arguments? No, no. none. No. I, actually, watching the 80s version, I, um, the 1980 version, I noticed like, there's that kind of grainy effect mm. over, um, over pretty much every exterior shot, like every spaceship shot. Yeah. Like, on a planet. And on the one hand, that gives it this quite nice retro feeling. On the other hand, I don't like it. I love the fact that like, the new the new edition is like, really clear and crisp and you mm. can see everything. Mm. Uh, new shots of the Wampa. I actually do like those. Uh, I, you still, yeah. the, the first shot where you see its face close up is still the original shot, and it mm. still looks a little like the Abominable Snowman from the Rankin-Bass Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer specials, which is a little <laughs> Not prevalent. big in England, but yeah. <laughs> Look him up. He's uh, he's not so scary. But the part where it shows him actually eating in the cave is is much better than the old version. They, didn't they just have like a a soiled Muppet being dragged on a trolley or something well, like that? Yeah, it's it's moving along in, in such a straight line and not moving up and down that it looks like it's just on a rail. It's, it's yeah. pretty terrible, actually. Isn't it filmed it's just to make it look like it's further into the cave as well, so it's not right in front of him and he could die at any second? In all seriousness, yeah, I kind of like it. I mean, I could probably have done without the bit where the Wampa minus his arm goes, <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't bother me that much. Yeah. All right. Then yeah. there's nothing for a long time. But in the scene where Darth Vader speaks to the Emperor via hologram, the Emperor is now portrayed by Ian McDermott. In the original film and the 1997 special edition, Clive Revel played the voice of the Emperor. Do you know who played the actual body of the Emperor? I can't remember his name. If you say it, I will remember it. Elaine Baker. Wife no, of, uh, the wife of Rick Baker, the guy who worked on Chewbacca's makeup and Planet of the Apes and does all the, the ape stuff. She appeared as Palpatine's physical form in the original theatrical cut of the 97 special edition of the film with superimposed chimpanzee eyes. <laughs> Watch it again. I would, love to hear, I would love to hear Rick Baker pitch this to him. <laughs> I think he I think he just showed it and said, does that look cool? Does that look as weird as you wanted it to look? Yeah, that looks good. What is it? It's my wife plus chimpanzee eyes. <clears throat> so, yeah, no, now it's Ian McDermott, and he's got a few lines of new dialogue that have been added to this scene so that it sort of ties in with the other films a bit better, in which Palpatine informs Vader that their new enemy is the offspring of Anakin Skywalker. Do you like or not like um, I, I'm divided on this one. Of, of all the changes that they've made, and you're about to go into the other ones, mm-hmm. um, this one I thought would be okay, because I, I, I like Ian McDermott. He's just brilliant. And he's, he was one of the redeeming things in the, um, in the prequels for me, because I loved it every time he was on screen, because he actually, he knew where that character was going. Mm. He, having played it, obviously, in Jedi, he enjoys that character. I loved in, like, episode three, like, the first time he says, like, after the mutilation and all that, the first time he says, the dark side of the force. Do you think you've been waiting years to <laughs> <say that again? laughs> And I thought, yes, he's going to be able to do it again in the Empire and, you know, complete the lot and be the Emperor. And oddly, he's a bit, flat in this one yeah he's he's kind of like uh gotta call vader now all right 
All right, Vader. He sounds like he's had a wild night out before he makes this call. <laughs> like like he found he... out this information over a lot of tequila. <laughs> the additional dialogue isn't all that great either. It starts to stray into the, the you know, the the aspect where George wants to explain everything a little too explicitly to yes. us. Yeah, the original dialogue was fine, was it? The son of Skywalker must not so become a Jedi. Jedi. That's yep. fine. That's all we need to know. Son of Skywalker. Oh, there's another Skywalker. He knew the father. That's fine. But at the same okay. time, that doesn't look or sound anything like the Emperor as we know him. And especially with the prequels, that hammers Ian McDermott in as the Emperor. But I think his performance was powerful enough in Jedi that he deserves to be back in there, entirely regardless of the prequels, if oh, he's yeah, in absolutely. there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it, was, it was just disappointing that he was, it wasn't his best performance. He wasn't all gloaty and stuff. But then again, I suppose he's just kind of... He kind of has to watch himself around Vader because he's basically saying, go find him and kill him. And Vader's the one who suggests, well, maybe he could be turned. And he's like, um, yeah, good idea. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's a tough scene, but I, I if I had a choice, I'd always go with the McDermott version. What is thy bidding, my master? My bidding? How about I bid thee to stop ramming the ship into asteroid fields? Can you handle that? I'm trying. Yeah? Well, there is no try. There's do and there's up royal. And you are up royal, so I'm hiring bounty hunters to do the job. But I... Now, it's already ringing. You look so tiny down there, like a little mean pepper shaker. Sheila! Hey, it's Palpatine. Listen, I need you to place an ad for me, will you? Imperial Emperor seeking bounty hunters to, um, to find and locate... Yeah, I guess that is the same thing. Okay. To locate the Millennium Falcon. She's typing. So all you see is my head, huh? Can you see this? Yes, I No, can... I'm here. Right. Oh, and be sure to mention some kind of a reward. What? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. How much do you think? Really? Well, that seems a little high to me. No, I see your point. I tell you what, why don't we just say substantial reward and leave it at that? Okay. Thanks, Sheila. What? <sighs> sure. What, what was his name? Dengar? Sounds good. Yeah. No, no, we'll, we'll bring him in first thing. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Sheila's husband's a bounty hunter. I told her we'd give him a look-see. But that knee's starting to hurt. Lots and lots of new shots of Cloud City. As in, the entering into Cloud City, suddenly the, the falcon shot from above and slightly to an angle, and it looks a bit flatter than it normally is. And then when they're in Cloud City, there's a lot more windows about the place. There's a lot of people walking around, and they, they make the place look a lot bigger. And it seems to be sunset a lot more. I like this. I like this. I know we did the whole most Eisley thing last week, but there's no Jawas falling off dinosaurs here. Yep. I absolutely love it. I, it. It feels weird now when I watch the 80 version and it's, you know, they fly off towards the city and then it just cuts and it lands. It's like, well, I love the approach to the city. Mm. And, you know, like weaving in between the buildings and there's a lot of things going on. Also, I also like the fact that so many of the sets around Lando's palace are basically corridors, and there's no windows anywhere. Yeah. It's like, the, the world needs more windows. You'd, you'd think they'd have more windows if they if they were in clouds. They'd be like, I'd probably want to see some clouds about that. Yeah, you would think so. Oh, bloody clouds. Wall that window up. Um, <laughs> I'm impressed. I am actually really... Particularly when you when you watch the original, mm. and you see, like, I, the, for example, during the escape, there's a section where Lando, Chewie, and Leia run around a corner, and R2 notices them and follows... And that's in a white corridor, perfectly yeah. white corridor beforehand. And then when you watch it back in the 97 version, or the 2004 version, or whatever, it's sunset, it's outside, it's dark, and it's even reflected on the floor. Mm. They really went to town making sure it looked 
as it as if it was always there, not just oh look we've thrown some stuff in, and that I quite like. Yeah, as if it was always there is actually probably one of the best aspects of uh, the special editions. Trying to put in stuff where it's like, hey, check this out now, is what pisses me off. But yeah. uh, making it like they should have made it in the first place. Yeah, no problem with that either. When I saw the 1980 version, I noticed there was a little bit of lens flare when uh, the Falcon's making its entry towards Cloud City. It's just on the left-hand side of its uh, jet engines, and then when it goes forward a bit, there's some sunshine um, and a little bit of a rainbow just popping off on the side of the screen. They got rid of that for the special editions because it was a mistake. J.J. Abrams makes a career out of lens flare and little bits yeah. of sunshine because it makes you signal, it feel like you're actually there and actually photographing the Enterprise in space as opposed to a model. That, that lens flare's good. Unless you to an extent, it's to an extent, <laughs> he does overuse it a smidgen in Star Trek. A but, but I, I like it. So lots of new shots in Cloud City now. <sighs> This is the Greedo shooting first bit for me. Boba Fett, now voiced by Tamura Morrison rather than Jason Wingreen. I understand why they did it. If I'd watched the prequels and then the originals, I would be glad they did it. But no, 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 no. Okay, I'll I'll get to that in just a second because I've got to do the next bit, which is just as bad. In the 1997 version, and only the 1997 version, Luke screams when he falls down the shaft. Oh. Really? Yep. Yeah, I was, I, I was wondering where that scream was, but I was watching the 80 version. I like the scream. I'm happy, but mind you, I grew up with the scream. Ah, dear, dear, dear. You would scream if you were hurtling down a right. chute that was like 50 million stories tall. Allow me scream. to convince you. I really like the inclusion of McDermott as the Emperor. It makes no real sense to have effectively the concept version play him, and it was a relatively straightforward swap out. What I hate is Luke's scream in 1997 and Boba Fett's new voice in 2004. When Luke falls, it's on purpose, and it's a noble and very significant moment for the character. His screaming takes that away from him and puts that fall in line with Vader's... ...from Revenge of the Sith. What it lacks is dignity and resolution. Also, do you recognise it? I don't. It's the Emperor falling down the shaft in Jedi. Oh. Do you see how fucked up it is that that sound comes out of Luke's mouth? Yeah, that's that's just wrong. They couldn't even get another scream. They couldn't get Mark Hamill in to do the scream. Mark, could you scream? For... They're like, fuck it. That's going to take an afternoon. Let's it's just do exactly it. It's not exactly like Mark scream was busy here. or anything, was it? Like, Mark, I know you haven't been working for a few years. Um, we right. were paid to scream once. Batman, excuse me. Yeah, he's, he's a pretty skilled voice actor. I've, yeah, I've, I've I think he can watched. scream on cue, actually. I've never watched Batman the Animal. I do not care for Batman. The original voice of Boba Fett sounded like this. What if he doesn't survive? He's worth a lot to me. In 2004, following Attack of the Clones, they redubbed it to this. What if he doesn't survive? He's worth a lot to me. This is just plain wrong for two reasons. One, 
Boba Fett is not Jango Fett. Morrison played Jango as an honest man trying to make his way in the galaxy. Sure, he caps his co-workers in the neck if it looks like they might squeal on him, but he's basically a straight shooter. Boba Fett may have the same cloned body, but the mythology that's been built up around him is of a sneaky, calculating, and emotionally distant hard man, Dirty Harry in armor. His original voice perfectly exemplifies that underworld drawl that would go hand-in-hand with keeping up notoriety as a lethal bag of tricks. Number two is that it makes you think of the prequels. McDermott's Emperor was in Return of the Jedi, so you can forget the disappointment of the later films and focus on the man you know should be sitting on that throne. But Morrison's Fett was only in the prequels, and hearing his voice reminded me of the worst Star Wars film, smack bang in the middle of the best. It's like having sex with somebody who seems fantastic, but does something to remind you of a terrible failed relationship with a mad person. It's a bucket of cold water to the crotch, and my only wish for the Blu-ray version is that like the ill-considered scream that was removed once again for the DVD edition, Boba's original voice will be restored. Oh, and Greedo shouldn't even get a shot off. Hey, Mr. Solo. Solo on the rocks. You can't beat me. I'm Boba Fett. I'm the greatest bounty hunter ever. Oh, no, 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 no. yeah. What's that, Solo? Oh, blasters aren't fair? Okay, dig it. No blasters. Oh, oh, ah, I didn't see that one coming, did you? Huh? So slow. Oh, you thought I was over there, but guess what? Ah! Huh? Huh? Oh, over here. Oh, yeah. A little rope-a-dope, little rope-a-dope, huh? I'm with left, right, left, right. Oh, down goes Solo. Huh? What's that? Oh, you want a face-to-face? Well, let me just take this bad boy off my... Oh, he's even better looking without the helmet. Surprise ending. You want me to come closer? Oh, you don't want to fight anymore? Oh, your hands are up there almost like you're begging. Begging for a little piece of boba. Yeah, you like that, don't you? You like it because you're bad. Oh, yeah. You dirty little smuggler. The downside is that if you really think about it, the original Star Wars trilogy are a masterclass in filmmaking technology spread over six or seven years of inspiration, innovation, and improvement. You can literally watch the skills of the filmmakers develop over the course of the three movies. Whatever your feelings of the individual stories are, they do get more visually impressive as time goes on. So, for example, the Battle of the Second Death Star is more impressive than the Battle of the First. But the 97 and 04 editions were all polished up at the same time, lending all those individual years had to offer they never reached the standards of 1998 or 2005 is what i mean it homogenizes what was previously an evolution into a collector's edition set that exemplifies the best of technology in a year decades on from their inception so they may look prettier but the tale of their creation has changed on screen yeah i'll agree with that yeah part i mean part of their genius is is being able to accomplish what they did with what was available and that I, that i think comes through when you watch the originals let's have a look at what these films actually made overall at the box office now this is entirely disregarding merchandising revenues and home video sales which is going to be at least the same again but looking at the movies in a vacuum can anybody tell me what the original 1977 budget of star wars was just a little over 8 and a million I think it started at 8 and it spiralled into 11, which is what it finally ended up as. He had to borrow the last 3 million. Uh, How much do you think it made back in ticket sales alone throughout its many re-releases? Because Star Wars played for many years in theatres and then it came back in 97. Oh God, again, like I said, I watched the thing earlier. Um, I can't remember, it's something like, isn't it 200? 200 million. (sighs) Anyone else? Higher, lower? Higher. Half a billion. Half a billion. 
It's $775 million Jeez. just for A New Hope. That is, that is a That's seven thousand percent. I worked it out for you. Seven thousand percent. I'll just Damn. go over that again because it's a little baffling. Eleven million dollars made seven hundred and seventy-five million. That's seven thousand percent. Jesus. Empire. Same again. Cost eighteen million. Made five hundred and thirty million. Two thousand nine hundred and fifty percent. Still fucking good. It's the 12th highest grossing uh, film of all time. Probably the highest grossing independent film. Return of the Jedi. I'm Less. Guessing the budget, I'm guessing the budget was around 20 million? It was 32 million. They, they, uh, it was uh, the, the first two combined, and then more. Uh, and it made 475 million, so even less than Empire. Again, this includes the, the uh, re-releases, so that's uh, only 1,450%, but still a percentage most producers dream of. It's just the law of diminishing returns just proving it, it affects the most popular trilogy ever. Technically, not entirely. Phantom Menace, budget $115 million. Oof. Made $924 million. That's, yeah. that's 800% return. Clones. 120 million, most expensive Star Wars film ever made. Well over 11 times what the original Star Wars cost. It made the least of the prequel trilogy, at least, at 649 million, with only a 540% return. That's, that's still bloody good. Only, yeah. And Revenge of the Sith, cheapest of all the prequels, possibly because they had st- a lot of stuff left over, possibly because they didn't have to make it quite such a huge spectacle at the end. It was all mainly sort of uh, just two fights. Cost 113 million. Which, when you consider how much stuff like... I mean, Titanic had just come out a couple of years beforehand for, you know, almost twice what Phantom Menace cost. Made, a, you know, a billion. But I think Phantom Menace probably made more pound for pound. Sith made $848 million back, which is 750%. So that's actually more as a percentage than clones. So the total is more than $4 billion. And that's before merchandise and home video. So do you see why George Lucas isn't quite so worried about changing the prequels and all of the things that he's done? Yeah. <laughs> it pays the bills. Everyone's always going to moan at you no matter what you do. And the Rotten Tomatoes freshness rating. Star Wars, 94%. Empire, higher or lower? Higher. higher. 97%. Jedi, lower. <laughs> lower, definitely. 78%. Ooh. Ooh. Phantom Menace. Rock bottom. Sixty-two percent, the lowest of any of them. Oof. Well, that means it went up a bit for clones. Sixty-six percent. Ooh, four percent more. And Revenge of the Sith rocketed way up to actually a little bit above Jedi, eighty percent. Oh, I think okay. that's way too fucking generous, actually. That is. People <laughs> go back watch them again. Uh, yeah, they, they must have they must have miscalculated that because they've skipped the entire 70s no uh, Empire actually they have included the uh, 3% of crappy reviews from way back in the day where they're like who's this George Lucas think he is we don't want another Star Wars and stuff like that yeah we do if it's anything like Empire, Empire yes we do shit yes who could watch Empire after seeing Star Wars and go it's rubbish okay uh, just in perspective Clone Wars you know that brilliant film 19% that's, that's that fucking one? awful. That is the CG one, yes. Oh. Uh, the Star Wars Holiday Special, 40%. <laughs> and yeah, an, but that is just an exercise of what you can do with these characters when you're on drugs. An Ewok Adventure, Caravan of Courage, 27%. Uh, 
To preserve the dramatic opening sequence of his films, Lucas wanted the screen credits to come at the end of his films. Though more common now, a bit more common now, you think? This was a highly unusual choice at the time. The Writers Guild and Directors Guild had allowed it for Star Wars back in 1977, but when Lucas did the same thing for the sequel, they fined him over $250,000 and attempted to pull Empire Strikes Back out of theatres. The DGA also attacked Kirshner. To protect his director, Lucas paid all the fines to the guilds. Due to the controversy, he left the Directors Guild, Writers Guild, and the Motion Picture Association. Yeah. They obviously put some voodoo curse on him when he yeah. left. Maybe that's why he didn't hire a writer. Oh, fuck, that can't be it. Tell me that's not the reason he wrote the fucking prequels himself. Oh, come oh. on, it's- It strikes me as a stubborn sort of, a stubborn old bastard. I can imagine that is probably it. God. Interestingly enough, Xbox Live features many Empire Strikes Back avatar items, including outfits for Luke in Bespin gear, Han in Hoth gear, Leia in Hoth and Bespin gear, 3PO, Chewie, Lando, a Hoth rebel soldier, a Snowspeeder pilot, a TIE fighter pilot, an ATAT pilot, an Imperial Snowtrooper, Boba Fett, Bosk, and Zuckus. I've bought more than I care to divulge because I'm sport for choice, right? Wrong! My one and only favourite Empire outfit, Han and his blue Bespin jacket, was available for a short time for girls only. What? And then deleted altogether. He's even on the shot picture for the Empire Avatar outfits. If you go look for it, it's got a dude with ginger short hair opening a Slave One box in Han's outfit. Just to taunt me. This makes absolutely zero goddamn sense. Why make it and not release it? Was it licensing? And where the shipping tits is Darth Vader's outfit? We've even had two sets for the two Force Unleashed games, including Starkiller, an Imperial officer, Juno Eclipse, and a totally badass Stormtrooper outfit, which I bought, by the way, but no Vader, even though he's not only the principal antagonist of both games, but probably the greatest cinematic villain of all goddamn time, only challenged by Heath Ledger's Joker. I asked Microsoft directly and Major Nelson about this issue, and I got a donut hole in response. I I can't explain it. I mean, maybe there's another pack coming, but I don't think so. They're running out of time to get the last Empire pack out. Oh, you know that they're going to bring out, like, the Darth Vader outfit, and it'll be 500 points, and it'll be an extra 500 points for the lightsaber. The red lightsaber. You know, I think they might. Why not release the best bin hand with the Empire Strikes Back stuff and then just do a Star Wars set with Darth Vader and, like, classic Han Solo in his black vest? Can I have Obi-Wan's Jedi robes, then? Yeah, you can be old Obi-Wan. I will prefer the old Obi-Wan robes. They look cooler. I don't know why they have them. Now, James, a question. Yeah? The Force has been used to snatch lightsabers, lift starships, guide photon torpedoes to their mark. Would it be fair to say that the Force is a big magnet? (laughs) (laughs) I almost stopped speaking to Neil for the amount of abuse I've had about magnets this week. I count it at the moment at three emails, a couple of texts... Even some Twitter messages, there's just no escape. The, it seems the pupil has now become the master. <laughs> it rhymes with master. Okay. In 1981 at the Oscars, guess which film won Best Picture? Dot Empire. 
Ordinary People, a drama film that marked the directorial debut of Robert Redford. The story concerns the disintegration of an upper-middle-class family in Lake Forest, Illinois, following the death of the older son in a boating accident. No disintegrations. Also nominated, The Coal Miner's Daughter, The Elephant Man, Tess, and Raging Bull. Okay, two of those I consider Oscar-worthy. Yeah, Raging Bull's great. I'm not going to with that. I prefer Ali, but Raging Bull's great. But... Seriously, not not even not even sticking Empire in there as a sort of well, well done George kind of way. I mean, fucking Titanic won not only Best Picture but about a million fucking Oscars. I mean, back in those days, maybe they weren't quite ready to groom things. You know how they were like? It's obvious now. That I think about it. Lucas was being belligerent with the studios and and had made himself no friends at Fox and with the Writers Guild and the Actors Guild. He was kind of like this bad boy of Hollywood. So they weren't going to give him any awards for it. They got technical awards, which is like the middle finger from Hollywood. He also carried on in some regards to the to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, because all the Oscars they won were the third one. Oh, you know what? Save it for the Lord of the Rings podcast, which are coming. <laughs> but I am so pissed at the fucking Academy for going, what? Uh, no, uh, uh, Beautiful Mind. Beautiful Mind is the best film of this year. Excuse me? Oh, shit. You mean the Oscars are actually political? Ah, fuck the Oscars right in their fucking asses. While we've been away, I've actually been into a whole lot of other Star Wars stuff. And I got into two things which I really have to recommend for all you Star Wars fans out there if you haven't already checked them out. The Dark Empire series of comics that came uh, out from Dark Horse. You can buy the graphic novels for very little online. It takes place six years after Return of the Jedi, and it's all about Luke, his dalliance with the dark side as he meets uh, a cloned emperor. And to save Han and Leia, uh, agrees to become his apprentice so that he can hopefully destroy the dark side from within. Uh, It's a really fantastically drawn really authentic feeling Star Wars story, Dark Empire. And the other thing is the radio specials. In 1981, they did a six-hour, 13-part, just under half an hour per session, Star Wars radio play. And Mark Hamill and Anthony Daniels returned. And the rest of the cast are actually really pretty damn good at uh, embodying the characters. I've only listened to the first three so far. But if you want texture for the characters, if you want backstory, how Luke was and how Luke felt before he went off on his quest. I've just got to the third episode, I'm like an hour and a half in. They've only just gotten R2 and 3PO off the Tantive 4. It, it goes into so much more detail than you do before. You find out about stuff that happened, and it's all technically canon, because George Lucas allowed all this stuff to be put into the Star Wars universe. So if you read about Luke's times on Tatooine, all of this stuff applies. They made Star Wars in 81, then Empire in 83, and they didn't make Jedi till 1996. But the writer, Brian Daly, who adapted the films, died hours before the last show was actually completed. So these are actually really special because they're, they're the work of people who really wanted to add some, some substance to the films. And the films are fantastic enough, but if you're really a fan of them, track them down. You can actually find them on YouTube if you want to have a sample of them. But I recommend getting hold of the CD box sets or indeed the audio books from iTunes. You've got Imperial All-Terrain Armored Transports out there, Lieutenant. What's their speed? base must be extremely important, Your Highness. The Empire is employing its most powerful ground weapons today. Right. I imagine they intend this to be the final battle. I'm afraid the Empire is in for a disappointment. Outpost Beta. Yes, sir. Those walkers will pick up your presence any time now. You and your men get out of there on the double. Understand me, son? Halfway home, General. Outpost Beta. Flight launch, General. Commander Skywalker's forming for attack. Patch him in over the communications net. Yes, sir. Tell everyone on the perimeter to get set. Walkers have opened fire on Echo Station 57, sir. Open fire, controller. Open fire. Echo Station 57, this is Rogue Flight. We're on our way. Buster Rock. 
Imperial walkers are firing on our post beta, so we think most of our men got clear. We have the walkers in sight now. They've slowed to combat mode. Remind everyone that we're short on ammunition and power. Don't waste it. Yes, Your Highness. What's the status on the snow speeders? They're nearly at Echo Station 57, sir. The walkers have knocked out two of our gun emplacements from long range fire. General, those snow speeders are flying into a pretty uneven fight. Someone's got to engage the walkers. We need time. The first transport ship is off. Prepare to fire ion cannon. Transport approaching defensive shield, sir. Open the shield. Fire ion cannon two rounds. Ion cannon. Fire one and two. Security start is story on that assembly course. Oh, no. Second round hit. Oh, but will that suffice? Destroy your shields, overloading. She's losing her health. Transport and escorts are in the clear. The clear! Oh, that's one, Your Highness. Yes. A part of the rebellion has survived. Attention, all space. The first transport has got clear of the Imperial blockade. Walkers are breaking through the outer defenses. What about rogue flight? Signal from Commander Skywalker. Incited the walkers. Rogue Flight is attacking. One thing I love about um, Empire is, well, you know, the, the clue is in the name. It's about the Empire. I mean, Alex, you refer to it as a chase movie, and I've never really thought of it in that kind of term. But when you look at it back and, and you watch it again, it is it is a chase movie. The Empire is chasing uh, the you know the Millennium Falcon is chasing Luke, and you start to in this one get a sense of how big the Empire is. Like the villains in A New Hope are very much compressed into just the Death Star and a few stormtroopers and a Star Destroyer elsewhere. But it's it's very focused, very centralised where the threat is coming from. And you know there's a big bad empire out there, but you don't really get a sense of what it is. In The Empire Strikes Back, there is nowhere the rebels can hide. They go to um, half this you know dead, barren world and they still get found. Millennium Falcon is hounded by Vader's personal ship all the way through the film, Mm. and when they finally think they've escaped, the Empire's already there, Mm. waiting for them. And you do, you genuinely start to to fear the Empire, and fear what this menace is, and you do start to really sympathise with the overall cause of trying to bring them down, and bring down the Rebels, which is interesting given that, the rebels, after Battle of Hoth, the rebels aren't really in this film at all. It's mm. all about the characters. Mm. But you do automatically, you just, you just side with the rebels. I mean, Christ, at the end, I swear that last, that closing shot of the um, rebel fleet outside what looks like a nebula, that looks like that's the entire galaxy. And you think, you know, they've had to actually leave the galaxy to escape the Empire for just enough time to fix a hand. You really start to appreciate what the Empire is in this film. And you get to see their actual might on screen. I mean, before you got the Death Star, but you never really get the, the full-scale size of the, of the, of the Emperor's yeah. wrath. Exactly. I mean, like, this you get the Atats, and they're all just advancing, and the, the Rebels have no choice and no recourse but to run. They've stage. got this massive fleet. They've got and the- they lose as well. They lose the Battle of Hoth. They repel them for just enough time to get away, but they don't win the battle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like something. Yeah, like they've got, they've got the attack walkers. They are completely outgunned in that um, Battle of Hoth bit. And you know, to go back to the music again, there is one absolutely amazing moment that I think actually sums up the whole of the Empire Strikes Back in the, in the, the tone of it. It's the moment where they play the Force theme with such a level of desperation as a, as a single Atat Walker is sending the armies of Rebel infantry running.
and you know, you do get the sense that it's, you know the empire they are running from their empire you know from the empire all the time they've got the attack walkers they've got this fleet this is the one where we see the most star destroyers that aren't focused on a specific military target like the Death Star and protecting the Emperor. They're just out on a standard patrol, and there are, you know, four or five are, you know, loads of them. Christ, there's, there's a stage where there's three chasing the Millennium Falcon. You really get a sense of how big and how dangerous and how horrible and outnumbered, you know, the, the rebels are. It's, it's, it's brilliant. There's such a, an underlying tone of fear to this film. But the people in the damn thing. Yeah, I mean, that's the know. thing. The, the rebels care about each other. The Empire are terrified of each other. It's yeah. why you know that you are rooting for one side so strongly. Because you're like, everything that these rebels do, I want to be part of. They care about each other. They're fighting on the, on the fringe. They're, they're desperate, but they, they feel that they've got a good cause. The Empire are traveling in, in absolute mortal fear of Vader the whole time. And the Emperor. They're all like, oh, they're watching, they're watching, can't say anything, can't do anything. And um, it, it's, it just seems so very wrong, the way the Empire is run. I also think that there's something that's really beautiful and simple and elegant about the way Yoda describes the Force to Luke, about how it surrounds us and binds us and how it, uh, you know, we're luminous beings, we're not made of crude matter. There's there's something about that that is a lot more inclusive and helps you kind of buy into it and fill in the blanks yourself, mm-hmm. as opposed to the, the really kind of pedantic, down-to-the-details type of description that Lucas felt necessary to do in the prequels to try to fill in the blanks for us. That's where it completely falls apart. And I, I really prefer the kind of open, kind of inclusive description that Yoda gives. It, it, it was really powerful, I thought. It doesn't really demystify the Force if you, if you look at what he actually says, but it does demystify the way that the Jedi use the Force. It, uh, it gives you a scientific reason why they're more in tune than everybody else. Which... We don't need. We don't need. We don't need it. We accepted it 33 years ago, George. A New Hope, he was almost a prototype, displaying most of the characteristics he would later be famous for in well-lit rooms conversing tersely with bureaucrats. In Return of the Jedi, he is Anakin Skywalker, trapped in the suit, wrestling with his conflicted conscience and trying to work out what to do with the shred of soul he has recently rediscovered. In Empire, he is Darth Vader. A mechanical revenant standing in the shadows, striking mortal terror into the hearts of his enemies and allies alike. He stalks the corridors and bridge of his superstar destroyer, dealing out merciless punishment to those who disappoint, and single-mindedly pursuing our heroes across the galaxy. In Cloud City, he appears as the spectre of death at the one moment we've breathed a sigh of relief during a period of desperately sought safety for Han, Leia, Chewie, and 3PO. He is there to capture torture and imprison, using Han's agony as a twisted message to Luke, assured that his son's heartfelt attachment to his friends will bring him into Vader's clutches. He even casually freezes our favourite smuggler just at the point when he had developed a sense of ethics, and purely as an experiment to see if the process would contain Luke without killing him. 
During the duel, he controls the flow of combat entirely, fighting one-handed and mocking young Skywalker, prodding at a rage he hopes is down there. He humiliates and hounds Luke, up to the point where his son actually scores a lucky hit, which causes Vader to lash out and dismember the boy. His aim is to break Luke down until there is nothing left but burning desire to live at any cost, the same desire that kept Anakin alive just long enough to be put in the Vader suit. His short-sightedness leads him to believe Luke would join him against the Emperor through fear, arrogance, greed and self-preservation. Luke, however, is ten times the man his father was, and the 1980 and 2004 cut after having his entire world shattered and the shining knight that could have been his father rendered into the shadow of his hated enemy, Luke calmly accepts oblivion, dropping into the abyss in a gesture of self-sacrifice rather than commit any act which would harm the innocent. This one move on Luke's part takes the wind out of Vader's sails. Up to that point, he had visions of imperial mastery with his dutiful son and apprentice by his side, possibly the only being he would accept as his eventual destructor and successor. Luke does what he could not, and this leads to the ghost of Anakin Skywalker slowly creeping into Vader's being, a better man who, while flawed, wanted to do what was right once upon a time. It is the perfect beginning of the end to the reign of blackness that Vader has led for 22 years, in a character arc that, while nearly ruined altogether by the abysmal prequels, still gives you the most complex and interesting story of the saga. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate on a diplomatic mission to Alderaan. You are part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. Take her away! You can't do this. I feel the conflict within you. Let go of your hate. It is too late for me, son. They're like different characters. Yeah. Yeah. The One of the things, you know, you mentioned what a badass he is in this movie, and one of the things that totally struck me one of my favorite scenes in the movie actually is the carbon freezing chamber because there's so much emotion welled up in there mm. i love the art direction of it the the complementary blue and orange color scheme mm. looks fantastic um and the whole sequence vader's breath is like the underpinning audio throughout the entire thing even as leia is proclaiming her love for han you can hear him breathing in the background and there's just something so sinister and creepy about that the whole time that it's really effective well even musically i mean you know you go that that's the key point where the han and leia theme is just at its biggest mm, when yep. the two of them kiss he's put down this that dramatic moment as he goes down and then as he's frozen and as the claw comes in and reaches in for the thing all you hear is the imperial march darth vader's theme tune triumphant Mm. And it is, it is just incredible. I mean, we talked last week about um, the actor, the acting in the in the original trilogy being a bit hammy. Chewbacca was, it, I think, is quite good. You know, you, it, it, although he only makes noises, mm. you can tell. And when he just roars, yeah, you know, as as the uh, what's it, as the mechanism comes down and traps Han in the freezing chamber, mm. and he screams, it's just, it's that's still powerful on its own. Isn't there even a shot where, like, you just, over the smoke, you just see Darth Vader's emotionless mask? Yeah, he looks like a black ghoul in, in, in the steam, and it's, it's got a lot of imagery of hell, even though it's in the clouds. Yeah. It's, it's this combination of a sort of uh, mechanical industrial revolution, space age, yet medieval depiction of heaven and hell combined. Chewie! Chewie, this won't help me! Hey! Save your strength. There'll be another time. The princess. You have to take care of her. You hear me? Huh?
I love you. I know. So, uh, Mike, you had a unifying theory on Empire. Uh, not so much a theory, just kind of, uh, you know, what it means to me, which I, I admit is probably going to seem a little bit absurd, so I can understand eye rolls and scoffs as I go through this. But for a kid who was 10 years old seeing this, whose only entertainment options had been things like um, Saturday morning cartoons and, and Disney, The Empire Strikes Back was a pretty huge revelation for me because you know even after seeing a new hope it ended with the destruction of the death star everybody's smiling everybody gets a medal except chewy and you know watching empire as a kid when vader told luke he was his father um, i almost felt like luke did i was totally in denial even though deep down i fucking knew it was true and you know in that way the movie taught me some pretty powerful life lessons that my parents, you know, they hadn't bothered to burden me with yet because I was so young. Uh, things like the universe is cruel or at the very best, it's completely dispassionate. Bad things happen to good people and sometimes the bad guys win. So, you know, in other words, uh, Empire made me the bitter, cynical bastard I am today and I'm immensely thankful for it. I think, I think that's it. it. I think that's it. Right. That's going to be all from us this week. Mike, please pimp your show. Uh, okay. For something decidedly different, uh, you can visit thefanboys.com. We do uh, a podcast where we basically just record our lunchtime conversations. It is a podcast about uh, toy robots in pornography, speculation on the flavor of deity genitalia, poop, and video games. <laughs> cool. You say that like you said it before. <laughs> <laughs> that is the elevator pitch the best i got james and neil in case there's anybody out there who doesn't already know you can find our website at gameverse.co.uk we bring you the latest gaming news and a roundtable discussion in 30 minutes or less or your next one's free and then there's the end that fantastic closer that must have left kids in 1980 crying and bewildered no medal ceremony no party no wedding chewy and lando depart on a scouting mission that may not pay off Luke is damaged and trying his best to heal. Leia just realized that she loves a man who she may never see again. And the ragtag fleet they've rejoined seems pitifully unequipped to take on the might of the Empire that's hounded and ravaged them throughout the past two episodes. I think it was the first film that I ever saw that essentially ends on a cliffhanger. I mean, every, anything I'd watched up until that point was generally like Disney films and, and, and standalone movies that were their own self-contained stories. And to have, like you said, to have this... this film where thing, everything's not resolved where there's obviously the end of Star Wars A New Hope there's not, you know, everything's not resolved the Empire's still out there, but here to have like small personal stories and therefore the ones that are most important to us as a viewer to, to have those not resolved and want to know what's going on. It was painful but it was painful in the most inexplicably satisfying way you can imagine you know, especially it was just something that I had never experienced before you get to the end of the movie and it's like what they lost and Han has been taken away and I have no idea what's going to happen next 
There was something that was really exciting about that because I had never seen anything like it before. But our fears and hurt are allayed somewhat by Luke embracing Leia, offering some tiny comfort at the darkest of times. We know that whether or not they can get Han back and depose the Empire, that they have friends, that they have plans, and that they have each other. A tantalizing hint at the even stronger bond that exists between them. And we will be back next week for the conclusion to the saga. You won't have to wait three years, folks. Return of the Jedi, next week. I've been Alex Young. I've been Neil Taylor. I've been James Batchelor. I continue to be Mike Phillips. May the Force be with you.